and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 102, here in the middle of November. Sam Lebowitz, Jack Hendon, as always, and today we are bringing on a guest, a guest who was instrumental in the creation of this podcast, but someone who we've never actually uh, clammed up and, and gotten on the pod, and that's Mike Mayer the executive editor at Metsmerized and Mets Miners. He's posted over 2,000 total articles on these Amazons. He co-hosts the Get Metsmerized podcast with Sal Manzo. They record weekly episodes, kind of similar to what we do here, talking about the latest Mets news and developments. Um, they do good stuff. Mike, as you probably are aware if you're on Mets Twitter, is always out tweeting and retweeting stuff that's relevant not just for Mets fans but for baseball fans and for good folks on the social media in general. And Mike, we welcome you for the first time to PGE. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It is kind of crazy that it's taken this long, but I uh, uh, always enjoy listening to you guys, and I'm glad that we get to sit down and chat about some baseball. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Mike was the executive editor and still is uh, back when this pod started over two years ago when we were under the Metsmerized umbrella we pitched it to you and uh, Joe D, the the site owner over at Metsmerize. So I, I don't think that uh, had you guys not okayed us that we would uh, be here at all. And Jack, uh, you haven't said hi yet. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm really like, damn, like we really owe our uh, our life as a podcast to this guy. And it took us <laughs> 102 episodes to get him on. I mean, that's like, what were we doing? What happened? Um, that's no, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, I'm super excited to get started on this and, and, um, get into what's been a pretty busy week. Um, things even happening as soon as we were preparing for the recording. So, um, you know, I guess we'll just get the ball rolling on the fact that Buck Showalter is your national league manager of the year. Um, I think it's, I look manager of the year is like not a, it's not really an award that you look at the same way you look at an MVP or a Cy Young award, but um, like, I'm very happy for the guy. Um, I like that I get some sort of reminder that he was a part of this season and the season went the way it did. And um, I'm glad other people in the league are recognizing it. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Yeah, it was not a landslide victory for Buck. He, he got 77 points, which was the most he won by 20 points. Um, and it's, I think we all agree on that point that it's not the most important award. Um, but it's, it's nice to see a, a Met getting appreciation this time of year, whether it's on the field or off the field. And, you know, I guess the expectations around this team were certainly not 101 win level expectations when things started off in spring training. I certainly didn't think that they'd be more than a 90, 92 win team. And they surprised us in that regard. And first playoff appearance in six years, and, and Buck, as respected as he is in the game, he's going to get some votes for this type of thing anyways. And it's cool, I guess, for him specifically that it's his fourth time winning this award, and he's won it four separate times. Whether you think that the award matters uh, at all or not, uh, he's got no World Series trophies, but he's got four of these Manager of the Year awards with four different franchises. I think he does deserve some credit for that. Um, and to the people who left him off your ballots, I don't really see that as defensible. There were a few people who left Buck Showalter off their ballots completely. 
Yeah, that, does, that doesn't make a ton of sense uh, to just leave them off. And to your other point, four different teams um, for, for his fourth award and over four different decades too, which is kind of crazy when you think about just how long he's been managing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been super critical of Buck um, before they hired him, when they hired him throughout the season. But yeah, it, it's tough to argue with going from 77 wins to 101 wins. Um, obviously the season didn't end like anyone wanted, um, including Buck, but for him to get props, any of these type of awards, like you said, I mean, the Mets were kind of shut out almost completely in the gold glove category when certainly thought there was going to be more finalists there. And, uh, so it's just nice to see, um, some guys get recognized and look, Buck, Buck changed this franchise quite a bit from the start when he got there in spring training and just the feeling of the team. And uh, so it's a good side. I mean, th- this is a guy that's going to be, this is a win now team and that's what they got Buck here for. And the next couple of years, hopefully he, he stays along and just keep, keeps learning. I, I, I think that's the biggest thing for Buck now is to kind of lean on some of the um, new hires that they have and some of the younger guys they have on that coaching staff and just keep adjusting his uh, managerial style. Which I, which I think he did. I mean, he was aggressive with Edward Diaz last year, and I, I think you got to give him props for what he did in that. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see uh, how it goes next year. And, yeah, this is a nice award for him to take. Yeah, I yeah. agree completely. I think that it's really important when you're bringing new brains into the mix in baseball, nowadays especially, when there are so many – I guess, philosophies floating around about how to actually run a franchise and and the best ways to go about doing that. And the Mets, we're going to talk about it later in the episode, the new hires that they brought in, both on the pitching, like we talked about last week with Eric Yeagers, but on the offensive side too, uh, with Jeff Albert, who they brought in from the Cardinals to run hitting. uh, It's really, really important that people at the top of the organization don't have warring philosophies with these people that you're bringing in to create some change and improvements in the organization. So I think the fact that, first of all, that Jeremy Hefner is still here, despite there being a new director of pitching in the organization, I am hoping is a sign that Hefner is kind of willing to understand what Jaegers has to say and incorporate that because you don't want guys to get developed in this system a certain way and then arrive at the major league staff and be told to do things a completely different way. You don't want two different philosophies for pitching. Likewise, you don't want two different philosophies for hitting. And you don't want two different philosophies for how the organization is going to be run on the field. And uh, if if Buck can buy into the the things that these new guys are going to do, I think that is equally, just as much as this award might be a testament to the kind of manager that he can be. Uh, And I'm I'm hoping and I'm optimistic, I think, because there were changes throughout the season as things went along that um, at least told me a little bit that, that he's not completely stuck in the past, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I think to Mike's point about Diaz, that's a perfect example of, a you know, I guess a situation in which we saw Buck become more progressive minded um, in the way that he manages the game. Um, I think you still definitely see things that sort of give you some pause. Um, and we all know this, right? We've been critical of it. I think, for example, Sam, to your point about, you know, implementing a good process and making sure that the philosophy is consistent throughout hopefully in time, whether that's next year or the year after, I mean, really hopefully next year and moving forward, like 
you know, the Mets can figure out some sort of way to get their DH situation right. Um, Buck loved batting his DH fifth, did not approve of taking, you know, lefties and righties out. There was a lot of, I think, sort of platoon pigeonholing that took place between Daniel Vogelback and Darren Ruff. Um, that sort of issue that Buck encountered, obviously it does end with Buck Showalter's decisions, but it also starts with personnel decisions that the front office makes, uh, scouting decisions that they make as far as how they develop players, how they, you know, help them get on the right track, um, approaching left-handed pitching, um, approaching, you know, velocity up and in, stuff like that. Um, so I think really when it comes to the product on the field, which manager of the year is almost always determined by, um, especially from a Delta standpoint, right, where you take a team after where they start, like Buck Showalter definitely um, did the most for his team in that way. And um, I'm glad that they're giving him the credit he deserves. Um, I'm also excited to see like what they do next to sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, kind of like buck proof the roster a little bit to protect against those decisions because it's gonna it's it's gonna be an issue, right? I mean, if Buck never wants to pinch hit for a guy, um, that guy needs to be a lot better um, than James McCann, for example, right? Like there are definitely moves that we'll talk about throughout the off season. Um, I think depth is something that ultimately was at the forefront to be addressed today with the rule five decisions that were, or in the Mets case, weren't made. They really didn't do anything here. Um, I'm not totally sure as to whether or not this is good or bad. Cause my understanding of their eligible minor leaguers beyond Jake Mangum is pretty limited. I, I've the, you know, SNY has been forcing me to like Jake Mangum, like all year. It, it doesn't really, <laughs> It doesn't work for me because he's just kind of like a, you know, an outfielder who can kind of hit a little, kind of feel a little, but like he's probably not a starter. Um, Every team has a Jake Mango. I, yeah. I think that's the, the best way to put it, that the peddling of him as a prospect, whether it's SNY or Anthony Tacomo's had his cute little articles about Mangum, whatever. Like, I'm not losing sleep if they lose Jake Mangum. I also don't think that there's a single team in baseball that's employing good process. Like we talked about the importance of process just a couple minutes ago that is looking at Jake Mangum as someone who's unprotected for the rule five draft and is like, that's the guy, that's the guy we need to get. He's an X factor. He's a guy, he's probably a guy you could carry for an entire season as a rule five guy, but is he really the guy that, that you're looking to do that with, you know, like rule five guys, if you're trying to carry a rule five guy all season long, you're looking for two things. You're looking for ability to keep them on your active roster, and you're looking for upside for when you do that. And I, I don't see that with Jake Mangum. I think you have the ability to do that, to hide him as a fourth or fifth outfielder at the back end of your roster, but I don't see the upside in doing so. Um, he's not young. There's really no power potential. He's added some strength, but he's still not a guy who's going to hit more than six or seven home runs in any given season. He's a plus runner, but he's not an elite runner. He's a plus defense defensive outfielder, but he's not an elite defensive outfielder. Like they're, these kind of guys are a dime a dozen. Um, but I think quickly before we jump into any of that, any of Mike's thoughts on that, just quickly the the deadline to set your forty man rosters prior to the Rule Five draft was today, November fifteenth, when we're recording at six p.m. About two and a half hours ago, at our standpoint, obviously more 
when you're listening to this. Uh, the Mets didn't add anybody. Their current 40-man roster sits at 32, so they've got eight spots to play with. They've got about four or five guys who are probably going to get non-tendered or DFA'd sometime over the next week or two, um, open up more spots. So they have a lot of roster flexibility to work with in terms of open spots, but they didn't add any of these guys. They left a handful of guys unprotected. Um, a few names we had jotted down. Mike, you can give your thoughts. I think you know better than us uh, about these guys. Besides Mangum, Javier Atencio, Stanley Consuegra, William Lugo, and Daniel Nunez, um, uh, some of the eligible names that were left un- unprotected. And I don't really see any of those guys, maybe barring Nunez, as, uh, as having significant risk of getting taken. Yeah, I don't think, um, and to touch on Mangum first, yeah, like you guys have said, um, Mangum might be in the Mets' top 30 prospects, but that, I mean, that's more talking about the Mets' system after you get at, out of the top 10. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a Travis Janikowski. I mean, that's the type of player that he is, and the Mets got Janikowski on a minor league deal, so teams are able to pick up a guy like that on a minor league deal, and they don't have to carry him all year on the 40-man roster so that's the type of player that you can get um now was i mean a lot of people talked about him getting added and they talked about you said they only have 32 guys but you have to remember um the mets have still an entire pitching staff essentially that they have to sign this offseason so it's a very good chance that they sign eight pitchers or claim eight pitchers or trade for combination of eight pitchers from now that are added to the 40 and that's without a center fielder um maybe a catcher maybe a backup infielder so that 40 could fill up pretty quick once they start making some moves so i I don't think it's as open as you would just look at the raw numbers of 32 and be like hey they got eight open spots leaving mangum off is crazy uh Right. Yeah, I, I think I think maybe it was just kind of a surprise just in the fact that, like you guys talked about, uh, SNY's kind of talked about. I mean, I've talked about him a little bit because um, the Mets don't have any prospects in AAA from the outfield standpoint. I mean, Nick Plummer and Khalil Lee came into the year, and Mets fans were hopeful that one of those two guys was at least going to be a uh, fourth, fifth outfielder, maybe even starter potential down the road, but both of those guys just had brutal years. So, I mean, you look at AAA and you have Jake Mango, but that, that's your best outfield prospects at the highest level. So, but beyond him, like you said, I mean, Atencio, uh, Lugo, Consuega, and Nunez, I all have, I have all of those guys in my top 30 prospects, but um, the first three um, outside of Nunez, all of those guys have, haven't been above a ball and their A-ball experience is very limited. So I, I don't think any of those guys, you're not at risk for any of those guys getting drafted um, in the Rule 5. No one's going to carry a level of a, a player like that all year. I think Nunez, uh, Nunez got picked before, and honestly, right. that was pre um, his velocity now. He's actually added a couple of ticks since the last time he was drafted. Obviously, he's also a couple years older now, but any guy that's, 98 99 teams are at least going to give him a look potentially as a pick in the rule five and look that that's the type of people they had drafted in the rule five is reliever arms 
that's what teams right. are trying to pick up. So yeah, m- maybe Nunez. I know uh, Josh Walker is another guy that's kind of been mentioned, um, a lefty that the Mets put in the bullpen to finish the year last year. And he, he was actually up to 96 out of the bullpen. And uh, one of the only guys that for them that pitched pretty well in the Arizona fall league. But again, he's kind of just that type of guy that you can get on a minor league type deal. There's, there's not a ton of upside there. It's, it's just like a loogie reliever type guy. He's also on the older side. I think he's what 27. At this yeah. Point. He, he, he's actually older than Mangum. He's actually a couple months older than Mangum. Yeah, I was going to say both of them are in that same kind of age bracket. Um, I mean, but they were both college guys. Like, Mangum specifically was just this – and I've seen it now because of the my experience on the Cape this year – is, like, trying to figure out the difference between these, like, college performers and actual prospects is blurred a little bit the more you tend to watch these college players play, I think, because you can get caught up in the fact that – oh, these guys are, like, putting up big numbers uh, against college players. Uh, but at the end of the day, are there any actual tools there? Like, Mangum, I think he's the all-time hits leader in Mississippi State baseball history. He was a four-year letter winner for their baseball team. He was a team captain, um, and he led them to College World Series appearances. And he's a media darling. He's a very well-spoken guy. Um, he's a, a guy who loves talking to the media. So, uh, I think that that's part of the buzz around here is that he's just a friendly person. He's a friendly face, um, and he's someone that these guys who are writing articles about him probably tend to want to pump him up a little bit and, and improve his stock maybe to whatever case they can. I don't know. I, I agree with you on the fact that the 40-man roster can certainly fill up quickly because, I mean, they made a four, they made a, they made a move today. They, they, we haven't right. talked about Steven Ridings yet. Um, who's another 27 year old who they who they claimed off waivers from the Yankees? Yeah, uh, who's just a right-handed reliever. And uh, Jack, you a little more familiar with him than probably any standard Mets fan because you guys both went to Haverford College. You've seen him pitch a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but he's yeah. been hurt a lot. He's got five big league innings under his belt or five big league appearances. However, that stacks up. Um, but when he was healthy, and he might yet again be healthy now a guy who can get it up near triple digits. He's got a slider. Um, he's six foot eight. So anytime you can bank on that, if the arm is healthy, you've got some upside there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was surprised that the Yankees like kind of left him out there, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it had most to do with injuries. Uh, I, I think that's the real reason he was available. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you said, 27 missed, pretty much the entire 2022 season. But also from the other side, this is a type of guy that you is available on waivers and you got nine empty spots. Yeah. Why not? Why aren't you picking up a guy that threw 101 in his first big league outing? Um, Right. It's it's far more than nine spots too, really, when you think about it, because like Yoan Lopez is how much do you, (laughs) you know, weigh that as a spot? How much do you weigh Sean Reed Foley, who isn't going to even be around next year as a spot, right? Like there'll be openings for sure beyond that. Yeah. And, and there's more, I mean, there's more upside here with writings than either of the two guys you mentioned, despite the fact that they have more major league innings. But again, you're talking about a guy with serious extension, good induced vertical, vertical break and uh up to 100 uh if he's healthy i mean he's the type of guy that you hope jaegers gets a hold of and they they can uh maybe mold that slider uh 
a little bit and uh, get some more out of them. And uh, that's that's a good guy to have in the sixth, seventh inning, anyone that's throwing hard like that. And uh, the, the Mets need arms. I mean, and they need some upside. I mean, they just don't have anything at the AAA level um, outside of like Bryce Montez de Oca and Mikhail Otanias. I mean, we're talking, we saw it last year, Steven Nagosik, um, Jan Lopez, Adonis Medina. Some of these guys had some good innings for the Mets, but you'd like to see some bigger upside there. I mean, look, we're talking about the Yankees. Look what the Yankees have seemingly done year in and year out in just plucking these guys out of their system and other teams' system and getting quality mm-hmm. relievers. Uh, that's something you hope that the Mets can do going forward. Yeah. yeah is, I mean, the Yankees can take a risk and leave a Steven Ridings uh, available on waivers because they can – seemingly pluck random dudes like Ron Marinaccio out of AAA almost every year. Like they can, they, like you said, Mike, they build a bullpen. It seems like, or at least the back half of a bullpen almost as good, if not better than probably any team in baseball, except the Rays. I think as I think the Rays and the Yankees are probably the two teams who I would put up there as the best at constructing a bullpen from whatever spare parts you have, at the top end of your depth chart in triple a i give the, uh, in, the, in the brewers majors. some credit too there personally but yeah yeah. They, yeah i guess i guess the brewers too i mean the dodgers obviously are, are have figured out how to do this too and and turning guys like yancy almonte into and um evan phillips into monsters but right. uh i mean yeah once you become we talked about this the last couple weeks too with process and and i think jack you and i talked about this specifically last week when we were talking about jaeger's Mm-hmm. is and uh trying to be the the east coast dodgers is um you want to be the guy that can take a risk by leaving off a of steven ridings uh but until you get to that point you can take on the risk of adding a steven ridings um mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what you have here and what you have here is a six foot eight 220 pound right hander who is 96 97 up to 100 with a slider that you can probably figure out how to make a little bit better if you really believe the pitch science that the Mets are investing in and you know what if it doesn't work out it's the same thing as uh Tyler Saucedo who they got from the Blue Jays so we I don't even think we chatted about him last week the left-hander a guy who's on your 40-man roster and you can give him some innings in spring training and if you're liking what you're seeing if you think that uh it's it's blending well with what you want it to blend with the teachings that you're trying to put forth with him, um, turning him into something useful for you as a franchise. If it's not working, then you can just cut him because that's a guy like a Yoan Lopez. If he's not good. And yeah. I think that's what you're looking at here with Steven writings. It's really just no risk. And he's a guy who honestly, uh, if it turns out that they're in a 40 man crunch towards the end of the off season, and they make an ad and they think they have someone better. He might not even make it to spring training. Um, so I don't really think that there's much of a risk in adding this type of guy. I am a little shocked at the end of the day now that he's the only ad the Mets made um, at, after the 40-man roster cutoff before the Rule 5, not in terms of protecting players from the Rule 5, um, but in terms of not adding someone who was left available for a team that's in a roster crunch. A lot was made about the Rays. The Rays did make some smaller trades, Really, the only significant arm that the Rays wound up moving was JT Chargois, 
who goes to the Marlins, along with former slapdick prospect Xavier Edwards, who might wind up being a pest in the Mets' side. Um, they did also DFA Ryan Yarbrough. They released Brendan McKay, who won't pitch at all this year. He had Tommy John surgery. He's a guy the Mets liked in the past. Um, they also outrighted Nick Anderson, who's now with the Braves. They traded G-Man Choi. The Rays, doing what they do every year before this specific date in the offseason calendar, is just cutting anyone who's making a little bit too much money and isn't worth it in their eyes. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was kind of built up to today that the Mets would be involved in some way. And uh, um, the Mets did have conversations with the Rays. Uh, Torinos was a name that they talked to the Rays about. And uh, Brooks really was another one that the Mets had interest in, but he's, got a, he's still got a decent amount of control. So the Rays wanted to hold on to him and you, you get, they have to pitch someone next year. So they, they had to hold on to some arms. Yeah. I think Yar, Yarbrough's another guy, but he is making a little over 4 million or going to make a little over 4 million next year. And it's just a couple of mediocre years after a good start to his race career. So yeah, I think um, there's some other arms. I mean, there was a lot of players DFA today. So, I mean, the, the Mets are going to be aggressive in that market while they have the open roster spots and why not? Like you were talking about, if the roster starts filling up, you have Lopez, you have uh, Reed Foley, you have Dom Smith that we haven't talked about. That's probably going to get non-tendered. I mean, they they have spots and options on the roster. So if they see it, there was, I think the last count, there was at least 20, 25 guys that are DFA'd today. So there's going to be mm-hmm. some guys out there. And um, interesting that, ones too. yeah, there is, there is some interesting ones to see if, the Mets can pluck an arm or two. I'm a big Art Warren guy. I yeah, think it's Art years. Warren on a John Curtis deal or work something out of that kind, you should do it. Um, haven't taken a look at too many of those guys, but that was the Marlins DFAing Eliezer Hernandez is another one because that's a starter that you know becomes available. I really like Chirinos. Um, I thought it would have been cool if they had pulled something off for him because he came back from – a pretty lengthy uh, recovery from Tommy John surgery. And, you know, his sinker was still moving largely the same as it had been before the injury. Um, and he would have been due a, a good sum of money because he's been in the race system for a while. And I think unlike Yarborough, he wasn't as likely to be non-tendered because he does have a little bit more to give. But, um, you know, I think the, the, the other sort of issue here that the Mets probably were, were, you know, kind of working through was, all right, well, they've already been pantsed by one organization making trades. And that was the Giants in July. Um, If you're going to deal with the Rays, you're absolutely going to lose that trade just like right off the bat. As far as whether that's a worthwhile investment, I mean, if it had gotten you like Pete Fairbanks or or Tyler Glass now, I think you'd do it 10 times out of 10 because those guys aren't often available. But there is a definitely like a cost benefit thing that I would imagine they're weighing um, obviously those new hires kind was of Fair, was Fairbanks, the guy who in Cleveland in the playoffs very much looked like he got himself hurt or was that one of their other? Rules? Yeah. He said he couldn't feel his hand, but it turned out to not be a, uh, like a Tommy John adjacent issue. I don't That's remember wild. what it was, but it was not, it, it didn't end up being like his elbow is fried. It was, um, I don't remember. I'd have to look, but that, that was the guy. Yeah. Yeah, he is also true. known for having a just a penetratingly scary looking face uh, when he's coming set. It's really scary. Um, I don't know how to explain it. It's it's yeah. like a thousand yard. It's like a million yard stare. 
Um, but I would have been all over. I think Rayleigh could have been interesting. Um, I think they have a couple good relievers there, but they're also like always growing guys. But you do have to think about, you know, whether or not it's worth it to deal with them um, when you don't really have the the tools in place yet. Whereas now it seems like the Mets are kind of moving towards instilling and installing some of those, some of that infrastructure to actually get a sound, you know, pitching philosophy throughout their system. Because Jaeger seems like a really good hire. I think really for their purposes, especially when you look at the younger players in question that they have to develop, like hiring um, hiring Jeff Albert is going to be like a, a, a pretty big deal for them. I think that's really the move that has I'm the most optimistic about right now. Mike, I don't know if you have any takes between the three, you know, between those two and I guess Eddie Rodriguez also, but um, yeah, they're, they're making a couple, they're making some changes that might really sort of shape the way they make these personnel decisions going forward. Yeah, I think, and I like them personally, Jaegers and Albert and everyone I've talked to in baseball have kind of universally said, wow, this is great hires by the Mets. And with the pitching and hitting side, you're hitting two really important spots. And I I think it's even more important just because um, over the last two or three years, it's just been kind of a revolving door in actually both of those areas in player development, they they haven't had one steady voice in hitting or pitching, really, um, because Hugh Quattlebaum was down there, came up to the big leagues to be hitting coach, went down. Um, they had Brian DeLunis, who was in the system for a little bit on the pitching side, left. Um, and then they've kind of just switched in between a couple of guys. And now this is Epler finally getting to put his kind of mark on this team and the franchise really and um, getting Jaegers and Albert in here. And that's just, yeah, that's two really good hires and two good hires. And uh, over the last two years, the Mets have also, this is what this coincides with is become one of the biggest analytic departments in baseball. I mean, this is a team that went from three or four guys uh, like a decade ago to now they have 40 guys in there and, they're also making moves like this where we're talking about a 27 year old Jaegers from driveline uh, Albert that they basically said brought in a whole new um, modern approach to the entire um, Cardinals organization for hitting. So, yeah, I mean, th- these are two really good hires and I think this is what, this is what Cohen talked about. And this is what Sam kind of touched on to be the East coast Dodgers. You not only are spending money on the field, but you have to make the right moves off the field and the right moves in player development. You can't be the East Coast Dodgers until you are churning out um, or making better players like Evan Phillips, he mentioned. Um, you got to be able to get those players and to be able to make them productive. And I think these two guys go a long way. And it goes a long way in helping the system and making it deeper. So you, when you're dealing with like a, a Giants team or the Rays right now or any other teams you're dealing with in trade that you're more confident in the fact that if I trade this player that I've got two or three guys in the system still just like him, or we can develop potentially develop him just like that guy. So I think um, it's a great start to the off season to be able to scoop up two of these guys. Yeah. Albert, I think we, we, you know, Jack and I went into pretty significant detail on, on Jaegers last week. So we'll, kind of leave it at that with him on the pitching side. Uh, but on the offensive side, 
Albert, like you said, completely apparently modernized how the Cardinals approached hitting, not just at the major league level, but all throughout. And some of the feedback that I've gotten uh, echoes what you've gotten, Mike, is that this is a great hire for this Mets team. Uh, A guy who I think a lot of people were crediting Albert Pujols and his great season with a lot of what Albert was trying to incorporate into his approach. Um, But it also had really like echoes throughout the Cardinal system that their two top hitting prospects had these great, great offensive years and really saw um, big boosts in their stock as offensive prospects. This Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn. um, And I think a lot of that has been credited to Albert's approach with Cardinals and their system. It didn't seem like the prettiest exit for him from the Cardinals system, but I mean, you're also seeing the flip side of what money can do for a major league baseball team is not just the player personnel, but being able to bring in the best guys off the field too. I mean, this is someone I'm sure the Mets were looking to fill this position and they looked around the league and they saw that Albert might be available and they're probably paying him for a non major league dugout coaching spot, probably major league dugout coaching money. You know, this is he, he and Jaegers are probably getting hitting coach and pitching coach money to be in Florida in the complex roaming through the minor leagues and helping develop guys instead of being in the dugout at City Field. And that's something that Billy Epler was never allowed to do uh, when he was in Anaheim. That's right. And I think that it's a really, really nice thing to see and a big thing to see for a team that is trying to emulate some of these smarter deep pockets organizations like the Dodgers. Well, I think that's a really good point, Sam, that, and the people I talked to too noted that is Jaegers was an assistant pitching coach on the big league team for a couple of years. Albert was a hitting coach for four seasons. And both of these guys took non major league coaching spots. And yeah, there's a, there's a reason they took it. I mean, obviously, I mean, the Mets are a good upcoming organization, but yeah, the, the money is involved there. And that's where Steve Cohen comes in. And I, I know I've talked about it a lot, but, uh, and you, I'm sure you guys have too, is that this is just where in these little corners where the Mets are improving and Steve Cohen's using his money to improve. And it's just, it's just an such an important thing to see. And um, ho- hopefully it trickles down. Um, I know the Mets made a bunch of other changes in the minor league system um, with coordinators, um, coaches. And so, once we get some more hires out there and see some more guys, this is, I, I think you're going to, it was more before the Mets farm system and development system was kind of, Oh, Hey, this guy played for the Mets or had ties to the Mets. Um, let's get them in here and let's get them coaching. And that's certainly not always the best philosophy. I mean, we we've seen it with guys like I mean, Kevin Long is possibly the best hitting coach in baseball. And the guy never took a major league at bat. So I think, and the new wave of coaches and stuff we know from driveline and other systems that you don't have to play. I mean, Yeagers has been coaching on a major league staff for four years and he's 27. So uh, it's nice to see that the Mets are kind of bringing in this new era of um, development in the minor leagues. Mike hitting Andy Chavez and Edgardo Alfonso in the ass with the door on the way out. Mike Meyer hates Tim Tuffle. Um, 
no, that's no, it's it's a salient point that you know, and it's one that, like, ultimately, yeah, they they need to. There's no CBT on on infrastructure. You know what I mean? You can. You, there's no limit on how how much you can put into developing brain trust, developing R and D, and I'm. I'm thrilled that they're doing that, especially because we also talked about this last week and it hasn't really made its way into the conversation, but like, you know, they don't have a president of baseball operations and they're not, it doesn't seem like at least now they're going to make any sort of effort to, to make something like that happen yet. I mean, things change obviously. And sometimes these, these things kind of come out of nowhere. We always point to the Lindor trade coming out of nowhere, right? Like maybe James Click comes in tomorrow, but right now that that's not really in the cards. And these are guys that Billy Epler is picking. They're giving Epler, um, you know, a lot of liberties and he's, I mean, to his credit, he's making some very good decisions. He's not, I mean, it's, it's funny that we mentioned the East coast Dodgers too, because I think that really like when you look at a team that is spending like the Dodgers, but not really, you know, investing, that's kind of like what the angels are, which I mean, Epler was a part of, but also like Epler didn't, he never got the tools because Artie Moreno is like not that good of an owner. Right. And doesn't really give a lot of um, leeway for something like that. And Steve Cohen's kind of different. That's generous Jack about Moreno. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, 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 I am never shying away from an opportunity to move to California and do things. So I'm trying to, um, oh, you know, angels hire me. I'll broadcast your game. Yeah, please, I, like, please hire Sam to do broadcast and hire me to do a color commentary. Um, no, but like, I mean, yeah, you see what the angels did, by the way, with Tyler Anderson today. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> they do this every year. They do this every year. Like Anderson, God, they they really they they really don't understand like what Anderson did this year, like to be different this year, right? Like probably not. I, I mean, I mean, good for Tyler Anderson. Oh, he's very around, good for him. He's always happy to see yeah, a player I, make money. Always happy. I mean, that's the other kind of side of these teams that can rehabilitate players is like Anderson and Andrew Heaney to another extent, who the Mets have been tied already fairly heavily with the early part of this offseason. Um, both guys who, uh, whether it was injuries or general ineffectiveness, specifically in Anderson's case, go to the Dodgers. Dodgers tell them, hey, tweak this, throw this. Like, Heaney was a sinker curveball guy uh, and or a four-seamer curveball guy, and the Dodgers told them sinkers and, and sliders, and, and it really worked for Heaney. Um, Anderson was pretty much just throwing cutters, uh, and it worked for them. And, and the fact that they've been both rehabilitated by that Dodgers machine, now Tyler Anderson can go um, up the highway a little bit with three years and $39 million. It was like right after the uh, qualifying offer deadline at 4 mm-hmm. p.m. today when that, that contract first broke. So, like, good for him. Another game was a guy who the Mets – uh, might have been interested in to try to fill out their rotation, but it seems like they're more interested in Heaney. I, I think we can maybe now pivot to that side of the conversation, uh, the major league, the free agent side. We talk about the money that the Mets are spending off the field. There's lots of money to be spent on the field, and today we have a better idea of the scope of free agency given um, that a couple of free agents. Mike's fumbling around over there. I don't know what's going on there. And up in Maine, um, the uh, the Mets uh, have a better idea of, of what's available to them if they had any interest in like 
a Jock Peterson or a Martin Martin Perez. Those guys both took qualifying offers to rejoin the Giants and Rangers, respectively. Um, but every other qualified free agent, including uh, the ones that the Mets gave offers to, Bassett, Nimmo, DeGrom, all hitting the open market after declining their contracts. So um, we've got, I guess, that's 17 qualified free agents. I think the total number was 19 to accepted um, guys who are going to cost the Mets pretty heavily if they decide to sign. There are no penalties if they re-sign one of their qualified guys, but the penalties, I think for the Mets specifically, it's uh, they lose their comp pick in a fourth or fifth rounder? Yep, it's a it's a second and a fifth. And one million in your IFA bonus. Pretty, pretty steep. So I, I think the Mets probably do wind up signing a qualified guy, but I don't think if they do sign a qualified guy, it's going to be on the lower end of that qualified spectrum, like a Nathan Eovaldi. I think it would be more like a Trey Turner or a Carlos Rodon. No, yeah, I agree with that. And I think, yeah, I mean... That's why Tyler Anderson, I was I was kind of surprised that anyone signed him. I, I just figured he was going to be a guy that accepted the qualifying offer kind of like Perez did. But, yeah, it's a good point. I, I, I don't think the Mets, like I know I've heard Evaldi's name, but it, it just doesn't make a ton of sense for me. For They need pitching, but to lose a second, fifth, and a million dollar in the IFA and then whatever deal you're giving Evaldi, I, I think – if they do that, it's going to be reserved for a guy like a Trey Turner, uh, Rodon. I mean, that's really what makes sense. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the Mets, so yeah, I, I think they're going to go big fish hunting still. I mean, they have to, especially if they lose, say, DeGrom signs with the Rangers. I mean, I know that's what we're going to end up talking about is DeGrom. That's a big vocal point right now. So if DeGrom, DeGrom goes to the Rangers, what are you left looking at? Uh, Rodon's there, which I think they would have no issue losing those picks for. And they like a lot. I mean, they had a lot of conversations with him last offseason. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if they were – I mean, they are interested in him. So it wouldn't surprise me if DeGrom signs, they turn right to him and go right after him full bore. Um, assuming that's how it plays out because you never know in a off season. I mean – Someone could throw stupid money at Rodon tonight, and then he's signed, and then it's not the Rangers, and then the Rangers still signed DeGrom. So then where are the Mets headed? Justin Verlander. Um, everything I've heard about is that the Mets have some real interest there, and that's assuming that they don't get DeGrom. They're, they're not going to sign DeGrom and Verlander, and then you have Verlander, um, DeGrom, and Scherzer making just – buckets of money next year and not really like a long-term plan there. So, but I, I do think if they lose out on DeGrom, Verlander is an option. Uh, I'm not sure that Verlander wants to leave Houston. So we'll, we'll see if that matters. But once you get after DeGrom, Rodon and Verlander, I mean, that's kind of where you start dropping off and you don't have the, I mean, Obviously, those guys are aces, but there's not a ton of twos besides like a Chris Bassett and a couple of other arms. Um, the, yeah. the Mets are going to have to s- sign some pitching, and so going to have to get to the market pretty early. Yeah. I think right, that's and that sort of, I mean, for me at least, is where I kind of, you know, I was a little bit confused, I guess, by the fact that the Mets did just decline to offer Taiwan Walker 
need to even extend him a qualifying offer um, and basically let him walk. Um, obviously, there's an argument to be had that they may want to look beyond Walker and think bigger picture than just someone who I think on a really good team is a four or maybe even a five. Um, but even so, like, you know, you have that option to sign, you know, to Walker almost definitely for $19.6 million in one year, I think he would have been a surefire candidate to, to take that deal. Um, at that point, you're only, you only need to sign two other starters most likely between Scherzer and the, the Walker uh, Carrasco spots. Um, for them to not do that, I mean, suggests to me that maybe they're they're thinking more along the lines of just like hobbling together between two and four rather than really like saving up for those those two and three spots. But um, I mean, Mike, are you at all are you inclined to believe that this is a decision they made for financial reasons or is it more of a directional uh, philosophical call on their end, do you think, to just look in other directions? Yeah, with Walker, I, I mean, they like Walker from from what I've heard, and I think they'd definitely be interested in bringing him back. But uh, I, I don't think they were under the assumption that if you give Walker the qualifying offer, that he's just going to take it. And I, I guess they just mm. weren't prepared to um, lock him up at almost twenty million a year. Which I, obviously, he, like when he now that he's on the free agent market, that's not what he's going to get per year. Um, Walker is probably going to get 15, 16, 17 a year over multiple years after. I mean, let's face it. He had two pretty solid years for the Mets. Um, that worked out to be a really great contract for them. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it was more about just giving him that money for that one year when they figured whether it's DeGrom, Verlander, um, that one of those two, potentially one of those two guys that, you're going to be paying a lot of money in a short term for a starter. And you already have shares are making 43 too. So I, I do agree though. I, I would have been inclined to give Walker the qualifying offer, even knowing that there's a good chance that he takes it. I just, I, I would have liked to have had that rotation spot wrapped up and not just wrapped up. I mean, that would be underscoring what Walker's done it for the bets. I, I think he's been a pretty good I mean, you can put him as a three or four in a rotation. And I think for $20 million to have that security going into the offseason when you need so much pitching, I, I think I would have done it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like the the, uh, the idea of like weighing the, the cost is I think something that weighed on me a lot is I, I wasn't, you know, as fans, we can say it's not my money, all we want, but trying to think it through as a smarter fan or at least to try to be a smarter fan you know like is it worth it to have Taiwan Walker at that price point I was unsure of that I think I've been swayed I was probably 50 50 on it um obviously they can still bring him back but I'm I'm intrigued by some of the other options out there I think I'd probably prefer to have Bassett over Walker if I was bringing one of those two guys back obviously you want to bring DeGrom in the two I think the two biggest um, X factors, wild cards on the pitching market side of things is uh, Kode Senga, the Japanese right-hander, who, you know, the transition from Japan to Major League Baseball can be a tricky one um, for some guys who come over. And he he was outstanding in Japan, so he's a guy that could profile maybe as a Major League two if he transitions over really nicely. 
but that's that's never a guarantee with guys who are transitioning over. I mean, uh, Hassan Kim was more of a power hitter before he came over from um, the Asian leagues. I mean, and now he's a guy who's just kind of a slap slap hitting shortstop with the Padres. Like you never really know how those transitions are going to go. So that's he's a wild card on on the pitching side, and I think that the Mets' recent reported interest in him is probably because of what you were alluding to, Mike, that if they don't jump this market soon, then they're going to lose out on options uh, and it can get the best of them. The other wild card is if the Angels are <laughs> lying about Shohei Otani. Is if he's available to trade for, I think you got to try to make that happen if you're the Mets. Because talk about big ticket items. Talk about a big fish that you're going out for. I, I think that's a guy that if he's even a little bit available – you got to you got to have the Angels on the phone, and you got to try to make that happen if you're the Mets. If you're looking for pitching, I I think that that's an absolute. I mean, we've talked about that too. People have been talking about Otani to the Mets probably since July when it became fairly obvious that he wanted out of Anaheim. Uh, and I think if you can make that happen, you got to make that happen. So those are the two wild cards. I think. Well, I think why not both of them, Otani and Senga? I think that'd be a great duo to yeah. bring to New York. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. We we know the, the Epler connections to Otani. I mean, he's he's the guy that brought him to the Angels. Um, we know that Epler called the Angels um, in July to see what it looked like. Um, I, I I tend to agree with Sam that there's a potential that they are just flat out lying. I mean, that that would be perfect from their GM to say, of course he's not available. Like we're not going to trade him. But at what point are they just going to accept the fact that they're getting nothing back for the most talented player in the world? Like you you can't just hold on to this guy that you know at this point doesn't really want to be a part of a franchise that doesn't really have a direction. I mean, they have Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, and then what? I mean, Tyler Anderson. Um, but like, right. yeah, Aaron, Lee. yeah, it's just, you have to imagine that at some point in this off season, someone's going to say something and he's going to be like, yeah, you're right. We really got to trade this guy. Cause we can right now, they can still get a massive haul for Otani. Um, so, and yeah, I, I think the Mets would definitely be involved if he becomes available again. And yeah, I, I like Sanga. I talked much about him on our podcast just last night kind of what Sam was talking about um, with his two upside that that's where for me, I think um, he's going to get paid about what Walker is per year, but I think he's got that a bigger, a better upside the Walker. He, I think he can be a two. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a guy that's got a legit fastball up to a hundred. Uh, his ghost fork ball is a legit major league pitch. Um, his sliders, I think is a major league pitch too. And he, he's got a curveball and a cutter too. So this is a guy that I think is going to be, I mean, at worst, he's a back-end starter. At best, he's got that two upside. So I think he's one of the guys I think is going to sign pretty quickly too. Um, he's in the States now, and he's meeting with teams. And I, I think he's one of the ones that's going to probably try to jump the market and sign. And the Mets are fit. Look, his agent said he wanted to play for a big market team that's ready to win and that is – keyed in on the analytics. I mean, if that doesn't strike you as the Mets, that's a perfect fit right there. It's just a perfect fit. So, um, and the Mets need pitching. So I, I really like that. Um, if they could make that happen. 
Yeah. I think I th- I really like Senga. I think he's less of a wild card than than Sam is, I think, you know, presented him to be. I think that forkball is really good. I also think when you talk about players who come over from the NPB in particular, the pitchers historically have transitioned over to the majors a lot better than hitters have. Um, I think about Masahiro Tanaka. I think of Kenta Maeda. Um, I mean, you say Kikuchi is a more recent example, probably has not panned out all that well, but um, there are a lot of good examples to draw from that, that have been successful. Um, I think really the other factor here between him and Otani is that whereas you are, I think, fairly likely in a trade scenario, if you're the Mets, to be outbid in a war for Otani, uh, you're not as likely, not nearly as likely to be outbid in a bidding war where it comes to money uh, for, you know, for Kodai Senga. I think that really that's like, that's probably, I mean, it's definitely the thing you should act on first because you don't really know what the, the market looks like for you know, Otani right now. But I think even if you act on Senga, like, you know, and you get him, like you are looking at someone who could very potentially be a number three starter for this team. Um maybe even a number two, depending on how they want to round it out, right? Because they could make a couple decisions, right? They could decide to go with Carlos Rodon or Justin Verlander, or they can sort of take the route that the Giants have and look at guys that are Alex Cobb, Anthony Discofani, adjacent, and sort of work together a bunch of guys who have two, three upside. And, you know, worst case scenario, you have a bunch of really good threes and fours um, in the back of the rotation. So I think I think either option looks really good, but I'm glad we got to touch on Senga because I'm I'm very much on board with this. Any amount of money, I think, would be a, a, a worthwhile amount of money for him. I don't want to make it sound like I'm not on board yeah. with Senga because I'm on board with him. I think that there's just there's so much pitching to address with this this right. team right now um, that I'm I'm just not sure, especially because he is going to sign fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just not sure it happens, but I think it's something I'm, I am interested in. I want to say that I think that a rotation, if they don't sign DeGrom, but the DeGrom money that they would be signing on DeGrom goes to like the combination of Carlos Rodon and, and Senga. First of all, you're filling your rotation up at the front end behind Scherzer with long-term contracts for two guys who are significantly younger than Scherzer, which, uh, and also a lot younger than Carlos Carrasco. So that's, is something that um, kind of locks up the, the the front end of the rotation even after Scherzer's contract is uh, is long gone, um, which is something that you've got to be thinking about in the back of your head. You don't want to just be piecing together a starting rotation on short-term deals with older pitchers because eventually this is what you get where you have Max Scherzer and Carlos Carrasco at the top of your rotation in their mid to late 30s, and then you really have no one behind them because other pitchers are going to leave, whatever. Um, you know, bringing in Chris Bassett was obviously great for the 2022 Mets, but it doesn't really do much for the 2023 Mets at this point. So, um, first of all, long term, locking up a couple of guys who are floating around the age of 30 on four, five, six year contracts benefits the Mets over the next few years immensely. Um, but also, it just makes it a much, much better rotation in 2023 than than it looks like right now. Like Scherzer's obviously, I think Scherzer's going to be Scherzer. We don't really have much to worry about there. But Carrasco was not that great this year towards the end of the year specifically. And then you don't really have much after him. I mean, it's David Peterson and Tyler McGill and Joey Lucchese, assuming Lucchese's not um, non-tendered or DFA'd. 
uh, sometime over the next month, whatever. But um, you just got to address the pitching and wherever you can find upside on pitching, I think you got to, you got to try to make it happen. And, and I, I'm, I think my interest level in Senga right now, I would have to, I want to look at more tape of him and I, I want to see what the numbers would look like, obviously, but I would consider myself very, very heavily intrigued by him. Um, and I'm glad to see that there's actual interest there because uh, that's another thing that's kind of new to the Mets is the Mets really never expressed all that much interest in guys from the Pacific Rim, in Japanese baseball players and even Korean baseball players when the, the odd one comes about who makes the jump over. Um, the Mets never really seemed like they were very heavily involved in those sweepstakes. Um, so I think it's cool. I think it's neat uh, if they would be interested in, in a Senga and, and maybe even sign him. And now that we've talked all the, the pitching side and the major league free agency, and in addition to everything else we've chatted about today, we've uh, Mike has been kind enough to give us uh, pretty much what's become most of his, his Tuesday evening. Cause he goes to bed very early up, up in the Amish country. So we want to kind of wrap up things here with him. Uh, we've had some Wi-Fi issues, but the beauty of editing you guys at home won't even know a thing happened. Um, so let's, let's just remember some guys, Mike, obviously you've helped, helped us, allowed us to create this podcast over two years ago, but I don't know if you know how we do things on here at the end of every episode, we, for whatever reason, um, like to remember, um, a former Mets player, or if you're non-Mets affiliated, which you are, um, any, any player, it's fine. Uh, Robin and the Mets legends, people kind of stole our shtick, but it's fine. Um, another friend of the pod, Rob Pearsall. So. Without further ado, Mike Mayer of Metsmerized Online, would you uh, would you like to remember a guy for us? Does it have to be just one? You can, uh, we, we don't have to put limits on you, no. Okay, so I had two guys in mind when I was thinking about this, um, kind of for different reasons. So, I mean, growing up, I grew born, raised, grew up in Maine, so... I didn't, I didn't get to go to a ton of Mets games, but we'd always drive down for a couple every year. So we kind of pick and choose which games that we'd want to go to. Um, and we picked a, a home game. Um, I can't remember because, again, I'm getting older. Uh, my memory isn't as great. But we picked a game where we thought we were going to get to see one of the Mets star pitchers. Um, and we get there, and we this was in 2004, so – I mean, Twitter wasn't even a thing yet. And um, I not even sure I had a cell phone at that point. So like news doesn't news didn't travel fast of when teams are making changes to their starting rotation. Well, we were driving down for the game and we get there and Matt Ginter is making a spot start. And yeah, we drove all the way from Maine to watch Matt Ginter pitch against the Cincinnati Reds and luckily enough the Mets somehow won that game um again we're talking 18 years ago now so my memory's foggy about like how specifically they won but um yeah Matt Ginter uh, that that would, that's one that pops in my head just because of like you're going to this game and like me my dad and my brother were the ones that always went to the games and it was just we're excited because again we don't it's a depending on the traffic six and a half hour drive for us to get to a game one way. Uh, and so you get really excited for a game. And then, I mean, at that point, 
I, I don't think many Mets fans really knew who Matt Ginter was. And people listening to this might not know who Matt Ginter is at all. It is not a very memorable player in Mets history or in major league history. So that was the first one. And then the second one is kind of on a better note is Anderson Hernandez. Um, he was one of those like first prospects where I was just like, yeah, this guy's going to be a dude. And yeah. it was just, Oh boy. I, I don't, I don't even know, like remember why or how, or like what was the rationale behind thinking he was actually going to be a good big leaguer outside of that. He was a very good defensive middle infielder. And I always think about probably like one of the best defensive plays in Mets history is from Anderson Hernandez at second base, making that that incredible catch where it's, he seemingly just jumps and never lands. He's just kind of hovering. There's um, a still of him. Yeah. Like making that catch at like the fully outstretched extension. And it goes so hard. I'll have to find it and send it, but it's like, it's one of my, it's maybe the best baseball picture of all time is so cool. Um, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, it's fine. I, I, it's tough to argue that it's just one of those, like I'm, I'm quirky. Like you guys are Rob is like, obviously the the Mets have had their superstars and stuff, their memorable moments, but I, I always kind of like remembering those big moments that kind of happened. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, those big moments that happen by guys that you don't think of ever, um, like yeah. Anderson Hernandez or like a Luis Hernandez breaking his foot and then hitting a home run. Like th- that type of stuff is the stuff that I like. Oh, it's outstanding. That uh, that there it is that Mike just said there for a second. That was me showing the photo that Jack was talking about to the Zoom camera. Um, <laughs> not a visual medium. So sorry to you guys at home not seeing that. Obviously, the picture does, in fact, go hard. Just like Jack said, um, going back to the Matt Ginter of it all, uh, <laughs> Matt Ginter made 15 appearances in 2004 with the Mets, 14 of them starts his first 14 major league starts. He had been in the majors the previous four seasons with the White Sox, uh, did not make a single start in uh, over over 50 appearances, um, actually over 60 appearances with the White Sox, not a single start. But the Mets, um, he had 14 starts with the Mets. 14 of 19 career major league starts happened in 2004 with the Mets. The most interesting <laughs> thing about Matt Ginter might be the fact that his baseball reference photo is a picture from his White Sox days in which he is just loaded out with a Fu Manchu. I, <laughs> I mean, incredible facial hair going on here. And I, I a little before my time as a Mets fan, so I don't know if he had the facial hair when he was on the Mets, but... I think it's hysterical. He's 44 years old right now in the, in the year 2022. He's almost 45 in this photo, which again was from the beginning of his career with the White Sox from when he was between the ages of 22 and 25. He has this Fu Manchu on and he looks like he could be 44. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if either of you are able to pull this photo up on his baseball reference photo, he just... Oh, I see it. That is not a young man's face. That is not a young man's face. That was like every other relief pitcher in like the 2000s, though. Like, that's just Todd Jones. You know, that's just Rod Beck. That's like every guy. This is not a young man's face. No. But 
you're trying to tell me that in this photo he was between my age 22 and 25 <laughs> that looks like when you uh were a kid in school and you like opened up your textbook and saw like some you know like stock image of kids studying and like someone had just drawn a a big mustache on the kid like that's what it looks it, it, it doesn't look natural um god so, and and so to kind of add to that um so this kind of like started this weird streak of us going to Mets games and just not end up seeing who we wanted to. Um, two years after that kind of same situation, like we're just driving down for the day to watch a game. And one of the star pictures supposed to go was in 06. And it was another spot start. And it ended up being Dave Williams. Mm. Um, it was just so basically, I mean, your left-handed version of Matt Ginter like some really soft tossing dude that just, I mean, I'm sure Sam's got his phone. I can look it up is I, I can't imagine Dave Williams had more than like 60 major league appearances, something like that. I mean, I know he pitched for the reds a little bit, but he pitched for just, the pirates too, right? Like the, really yes, yeah. Pirates. yeah. Yes. The pirates. So yeah, he, he might've gotten a couple of full rotation years with those really bad pirate teams, but, yeah, I mean, Matt Ginter, Dave Williams, that type of seeing those type of starters, I, I guess that feels about perfect for, I mean, those guys are Mets legends, right? Yeah, yeah. Dave Williams, by the way, career between 01 and 07, he had 82 career big league appearances, 72 were starts. So we're talking like a little bit bigger sample size than, uh, than Dave Ginter. Um, although, Ginter actually his body of work in 2004 with the Mets was a little more substantial than Williams body of work with the Mets between 06 and 07 um he was not very good for the Mets was Dave Williams no he was really not his ERA in 2007 granted this is a sample size of four and a third innings uh 20 22.85 not no not no is that no that's not good that's that those are Thomas Zapucky numbers uh, <laughs> it, it's it's not ideal. It's eleven earned runs in four and a third innings is what Jeez. we're talking about. Yikes. How many like Yikes. appearances is a spread out across? Uh, this was this was a, a start and a relief outing. It was two appearances. Oh God! So we're we're probably talking about his Sapucky level spot start yeah. in there. Either that or he was bad twice. Like that's yeah. Hernandez is a good pull too, though. Um, there's some YouTube channel that has started like posting full length games from 2006 and i saw the like opening day uh 06 game and i didn't even realize that hernandez started that one it's funny you mention him like um because yeah he was a really good defender like he made a really sick play in that game too um he just couldn't hit that was really the the catch there and it was like you know i think valentine ended up absorbing those starts because like he, you know, Hernandez couldn't hit and like, you know, Matsui couldn't hit and, you know, sort of by elimination, they ended up with Valentin, but. Um, well, yeah, the other know. thing with Hernandez too, is that he came back to the Mets too. Right. And he had, he had multiple different major league stints with the Mets. Mm -hmm. I do remember the second stint. Cause that was probably like a, he got a more extensive look, but that team, that was Oh nine. Yeah. That was Oh nine. When either, he came, yeah. yeah. That second stint was Oh nine. Yeah. It was, it was a very bad team. So it wasn't the same uh, experience, but I guess. That's when the catch happened though. Was in that stint, I believe. Yeah. I think it, I think it was an Oh nine. Yeah. 
Because I, I, that I'm was, I, that, sure. we talked about it at length on this podcast over our 102 episodes now. I, 09 was my first season as a fan. I remember almost everything from that season. And I, I remember watching that catch. It was in Washington. Um, I want to say, I want to, I'm going to pull know. a name out of my hat. I think maybe Christian Guzman hit it. I actually it was, pull up the post again. Is it not in Shea Stadium that he the, makes that catch? Well, maybe he made a different outstanding catch in Washington in 09. Okay. So it, this, the catch happened April 5th, 2006 against the nationals at city field no or, no 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> not on, at city on, field at shea stadium sorry okay okay yeah well he made but it, it was, he must have made it was a, a home game okay well then i'm misremembering because there's a different catch that is oh because also- no yeah you're right this isn't this isn't the same one this one was off the bat of marlon bird actually right he was a national yeah, okay, that's... yeah, I, I found the catch on YouTube that you guys are talking about, and it's a sick catch. Yeah. It's Marlon Bird, broken bat, little humpback yeah, looper towards yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I well, could have, maybe I misremembered because he definitely did something cool in Washington. Maybe he was, was he a national in 2009 for a portion of that year? Yeah. Yes, he was with the Nationals and the Mets, both of them that year. So maybe he made a catch against the Mets in Washington that I'm remembering, but I'm remembering yeah. some kind of cool. If you're listening and you're aware of what catch I'm talking about, tweet us at the PGE pod and let me know that I'm not crazy. Cause I can't find it with just a cursory Google or YouTube search, but I think, I think that there was also a cool catch that happened <laughs> that involved Anders. Maybe he was on the offensive side of it. Maybe he was like Luis Castillo or something who made a sick catch on a, on a pop-up or something. I, I don't know. I sound crazy. Did you just say Luis Casillo sit catch pop up in the same sentence? No, 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 not like that. <laughs> no, I heard that. In, is, I said specifically Stanford in Washington. It's history here. I'm talking. Like, I don't think you're supposed to say those words in the same sentence as a Mets fan. I I'm talking about a thing that happened in Washington, not the Bronx. <laughs> Terrible things happen when you string those words together. Okay, we should move on to someone else's guy, maybe Jack. Who do you got? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, mine's a little more boring. Um, Jacob Resnick made a great poll today uh, with the history of waiver claims, um, met waiver claims from the Yankees. And uh, they have two before Stephen Ridings. Uh, the first was Ray Burris in like the late 1970s, which I, I don't remember Ray Burris um, because I'm not 40, 50 years old. Um, like but Mike. The, I do exactly right. Like Mike, do you remember this dude? I guess I do not, not remember, remember him. him. Um, but the second guy I do remember, uh, Chris Schwinden in 2012. Um, the Mets claimed him off waivers from the Yankees after the Yankees had claimed him from the Mets who had DFA'd him. Like the Mets tried to, it was a rare like DFA reclaim. It was like a Kirk Neuenheis thing, but or the um, Jacob Nottingham, a more recent example. Yeah, the Jacob Nottingham. Uh, there, Schwinden's numbers were bad with the Mets. He so bad. They were like, I mean, I had him up. I can find him again. I don't really like want to do this, but it's ugly. Well. 
but so he he was claimed four times in a 33 day span that oh. ended him back with the Mets. He okay. was originally claimed by the Blue Jays four days later by Cleveland, then the Yankees later that month, and then six days later by the Mets. That's mm-hmm. how he ended up back at the Mets. So, yeah, it's another one of those waiver crazy spans. Sure. Was, uh, was all of this before or after that terrible spot start in Colorado in which Scott Harrison wound up hitting for the cycle? Cause I'm that... pretty sure this all happened afterwards. I, I think that was his last career start. Oh, it was a bad one. The Mets like, got out to a, an early lead in that game, and they, he just was bad. Yeah, Chris Schwinden in Colorado. I mean, I who could have seen that coming, right? Who could have seen him getting absolutely like lit up? He got um, butchered. Yeah, by the eight and two thirds innings in 2012. Uh, three appearances, two starts, one strikeout, um, <laughs> three walks, thirteen hits, uh, four homers. It's the ratios are bad. Like if you add up his walks per nine and his strikeouts per nine, it's still less than his home runs per nine. Oh, um, that's that's it's it's not good. Um, I I really my only memories are him like getting lit up. I mean, hopefully Ridings is not another Chris Schwinden. I guess right. Like, yeah, we don't we don't want very that. much. Don't want that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my guy. I don't know. It's, it's not nearly as, you know, it's not rooted in any real memory beyond just like, yeah, that it's, it's pretty bad. I don't know. Yeah. Um, shall I finish us on a higher note than having to remember Chris Schwinden? Yeah, please, please bring us back to earth. I am, I am choosing today to pour one out for a forgotten soldier, a recent one because he was in the news today amidst all the roster kerfuffles across Major League Baseball. The Chicago White Sox signed an old friend of ours to a minor league Um, contract. I'm remembering Nate Fisher, whose one singular outing in Philadelphia in August uh, saved the Mets that day, the same day that Jose Buto made his Major League debut and was bad. And then um, Nate Fisher throwing three scoreless innings in his major league debut. This left-hander who had previously worked as a banker um, came out, saved the Mets, kept them in the game. Mark Hanna did the rest. And then they unceremoniously DFA'd him days later. It's terrible decision-making. Cutting him. (laughs) And the crazy thing is when he came up, like I had been following him a little bit, tracking him a little bit because the Mets, the Mets just didn't have any lefties this year. So yeah. they were basically at that point where they were just trying any lefties. And at that point, just trying any healthy pitcher. Rob Zestrizny, things of that Sam nature. Clay, Sam Clay. So I went back to what I always go down for spring training. And a lot of what I do while I'm down there is just take video in the backfields and so I can watch the video, use the video, whatever. And one of the videos I have is of Nate Fisher facing like double, triple A guys. And he's just not doing well at mm-hmm. all. He's just got, kind of getting knocked around by other Mets prospects. And it was just kind of crazy to see him come from that point to um, get into a big league game. And yeah, like 
Sam said, I mean, between him and Mark Canna, the the reason why they won that uh, major league game this year. Yeah. I've never been more convinced by a sample of one appearance that a guy like should have stuck around longer, but <laughs> like he was, he's being remembered way too soon is, is how I feel about it. I was with you. I thought I was like, not only the pitching stuff, I mean, the story is great of he was mm-hmm. out of baseball. He's working in finance and banking and, and then mm-hmm. came back to baseball and, Harry was a major leaguer and saving a team in the middle of a playoff race against a division rival. Like it was in a, in a, in a, in a, on a Sunday getaway day that turned into this offensive explosion. There was a rain delay in the middle of that game. Like it was an insane game and very stupid game, very, very stupid game. Just the most dumb game that you could probably even imagine. And here he was really the savior in a lot of ways. Um, Speaking of Rob Zestrizny, another guy who actually was in the middle of the roster kerfuffle, he got DFA'd by the Angels today. Perhaps, perhaps the Mets could could look to him on the on the waiver wire if they're really, really strapped for bullpen help and want to think he's worth a forty man spot, one of their eight forty man spots at the moment. But um, yeah, I mean, he was also like Zestrizny and, and Sam Clay. I think all three of them pitched either in that series in Philadelphia or in about a week span around that series. I know Clay definitely pitched in that series. It was like a 24 hour span. It was it, like it day, was weird. afternoon yeah. game of a doubleheader and Clay pitched and then the nightcaps of Strisney pitched and then the next day Fisher pitched. It was a bloodbath. We did a whole episode and basically like went through like the 11 guys that they added to their roster inside of a week. Yeah, Yolmer San- we ranked them. Yolmer yeah. Sanchez was Devin Marrero. Um, yeah, Devin um, Marrero. God, there's there's so many more that like just aren't coming to mind right now. Think about um, if this team had won the World Series, all these guys would have gotten rings. Michael Perez would have gotten a ring. Um, he had a couple of hits there. Yeah, he 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 was honestly good. I thought he was not Fisher. He's not Nate Fisher, but he was good. Fate Nisher. That's right. Um, yeah. Well, Mike, man, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we always give uh, our guests a little opportunity before uh, before closing to just plug anything that you're doing. Let us know where the people can find you. Um, anything along those lines, because, um, you know, obviously this has been such a pleasure. Yeah, I mean, just follow me on Twitter at Mike mayor 22 look for all of our content over at metsmerizedonline.com. I mean, the Mets haven't made a ton of waves yet uh, outside of Diaz, but I mean, the next, the next month or so, it's just going to be crazy with the rumors and the signings and the players the Mets have to add. So follow along to keep track of all that news. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a, Sorry, Jack, I interrupted you. Well, for those who, who missed the intro and otherwise aren't included in Mesmerize, basically has articles on these things like as they're happening. I mean, it was like that when Sam and I wrote for them. It's very much still like that. They are at the front line, um, really the, a cut above um, all other Mets blogs as far as getting you your news um, completely and quickly. Um, so definitely... Uh, you know, keep it locked to them if, if you know, if you're looking for everything you could need as far as what's about to happen in this next month, because they deliver. Yeah. And, and 
pretty good people over there too. Lots of good people over there too. And, and Mike is chief among them. And we appreciate him taking the time out of his Tuesday evening to chat with us here on Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Uh, again, check out Mike, Mike Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R 22 on Twitter and his podcast, the Get Mesmerized podcast with Sal Manzo. You have a new episode dropping probably when next, Mike? We just had one drop yesterday. There you go. Go listen to that if you guys want even more Mets coverage. Um, but I think that wraps things up here for episode 102 on PGE. This one's in the books. He's Mike Mayer. He's Jack Hendon. I'm Sam Lebowitz and Mets fans. Have a pleasant good evening. Thank you.